Welcome back for another episode of The Hub. My name's Simon Morgan and I'm Director of Corporate Affairs here at RA. Decarbonisation is the forefront of plenty of conversations in the transport sector today. No one needs convincing around its importance, but there are still plenty of industry participants who are unsure of how and where to start that conversation. And very often that's because they don't feel like they have the tools they need to start driving change in the way they do business. Consequently, we can end up with narrowly focused solutions that may deliver some positive benefit, but aren't harvesting the whole field of potential. Well, I'm pleased to say that our guests on today's episode are able to help in that respect. I'm joined by two industry professionals who have direct experience in designing and implementing a holistic approach to embedding decarbonisation in the design process so that clients are fully informed and empowered to make better decisions for their businesses and for the planet. It's time to say hello to our guests, both from Arcadis Australia, uh, joined by Ken Lunty, Technical Director, and Nicole Liang, Pavement Engineer. Thank you very much, both of you, for joining us on The Hub today. Thanks, Simon. Hello to all the listeners. Uh, Ken and Nicole, just as we said in the introduction, there's still a good number of people across the industry who want to do the right thing in terms of elevating decarbonisation in design, but perhaps they almost feel like the challenge is too big to get their arms around. Now, we'll obviously focus on solutions during this conversation, but I just want to start with uh, barriers. What are some of the challenges that you still find when you're trying to elevate the profile of sustainability in tender processes? And Ken, I might come to you first. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Simon. I think one of the main barriers is that there's so many aspects to sustainability that things become vague and confusing. Even decarbonisation can be quite confusing and quite political in some cases for the non-sustainable professional. Uh, This can be frustrating as they can't visualise how or what they can do in their everyday professional life to decarbonise in their job. Um, We all know what to do at home. We don't waste energy anymore. We don't waste water. We reduce our waste. We recycle. Uh, And for those that are more in tune, uh, we start to eat less meat and buy products that last longer and are repairable. Um, We invest in assets and companies that create a positive impact. But at work, it's not so easy for, say, an engineer or a designer to see the change that they can create. It's not so simple or focused. Uh, Of course, there are people who embrace this. But for many, they get frustrated and start to ignore the problem and continue to do things the way that they've always been doing. Nicole, just coming to you for a moment, we know that decarbonisation is a particular priority for younger people in the workforce and indeed in the wider community. Do you feel as a way to draw the perspectives of younger people into the tender processes more effectively and to give them more of a voice at the table? Yep. Definitely. A lot of people in my sort of age group grew up being educated about climate change and the enhanced greenhouse gas effect and how it's all irreversible. So we need to start looking after the planet now. And like Ken said, we were always taught to recycle, turn off our lights, reduce waste. But then we see statistics about how our individual efforts don't really contribute to any sort of reductions or any sort of significant reductions when we compare ourselves to the emissions from much larger organisations or corporate bodies. So it can be a little bit discouraging for us. But with what we're trying to do now, we're able to demonstrate that we're genuinely interested in listening to ideas from everyone and everywhere, regardless of whether you're an engineer or not and integrating sustainability onto our projects in such a simple way. So that will give everyone, but especially the younger engineers and the non-engineers, the power they need to speak up and bring their ideas forward. Mm, Great. 
that's probably enough for the moment talking about the problems. I'm very keen, as I said, to focus on solutions. Ken, as we've just been talking about, the scale of the challenge can be overwhelming for some. Are there examples from other sectors in terms of equipping people with the information they need to make the right decisions early in the process so that uh, decarbonisation is prioritised where it should be right from the start? Yeah, absolutely. There are plenty of examples where carbon and other environmental impacts of products or even assets are disclosed to assist in decision making. For example, in the property sector, we have neighbours ratings, which provide building owners and occupiers with the information on energy, water and waste performance of a building. This could assist in decision making for both tenants and building owners when they're signing leases or purchasing buildings. For other products and assets, there are things called environmental product declarations or EPDs. Uh, These are lifecycle based declarations of carbon and other environmental impacts associated with a particular product. They don't necessarily tell you how good or bad that product is, but provide you with comparable information to help you make a decision. In a way, it's like the nutritional label you find on the back of food products. A nutritional label will not tell you that something is five stars or zero, but it'll tell you how many calories, how much protein, carbohydrates, and fat there is in a product, so you can make an informed decision about your health. If you want to eat a chocolate bar, the nutritional impact associated with that food is available to you. An EPD is much the same. It tells you the environmental impact of a product, so you can make informed decisions on whether that product is aligned to your sustainability goals or targets. Only instead of calories, we can make decisions around carbon, and instead of protein, we can compare ozone depletion. Best of all, these EPDs are publicly available and have been disclosed for products ranging from bridges to culverts to concrete and even food products like spaghetti and tomatoes. And Nicole, the uh, example that Ken's just noted in relation to food labels, a big part of that is about accessibility and making seemingly complex information more digestible to extend the food metaphor for a moment. So how can that be done for sustainability? Is there a way to boil it all down to a sort of at-a-glance presentation that can be incorporated into procurement documentation? Definitely. So our current deliverables include things like our pavement plans, profiles, interface details, subsurface details. And what we've done is put those nutritional-like labels into our pavement composition profiles so we can see the embodied carbon involved in constructing and maintaining each of those different pavement types. And then when a client or anyone else picks up those drawings, they can immediately understand what we're trying to convey because the label is so intuitive and it's so easy to understand by anyone. And we still back up those numbers by writing some notes on the drawings, but those notes are more for information, not so much instruction. And that's what we've done for our drawings, but something similar can definitely be put into actual project briefs so that the entire project incorporates sustainability and it's not just each individual asset. Right, and doing it right from the start. Just drilling down into some specifics now, we recently published an article in RA Insider which Ken authored And the article examined an assessment tool that Arcadis has developed, which takes a more holistic approach and lets clients clearly see the sustainability impacts of particular design choices. And it does that from a whole of life cycle perspective. Ken, I know this is a big ask within the time constraints we have, but could you briefly outline how that tool works and perhaps describe how it differs from tools people may have encountered previously? Yeah, um, definitely. So I guess it's easier to think of this as a process to integrate and visualize sustainability within the design process rather than a tool that solves all the answers. So we took inspiration from the EPDs and the nutritional labels and we thought, 
how can we integrate the disclosure of information into the world of engineering and design development? The first thing we had to do was to understand the design process, and this is where it was vital that we engaged with Nicole and her pavements team. We needed to understand their world and how we could truly integrate sustainability into their processes. In the last year, our sustainability teams have learned more about the pavement design process than they ever thought they would. And I suppose it was the same with the pavement engineers understanding about how sustainability can be integrated in their designs. So we didn't originally set out with the objective of developing the world's most sustainable pavement or a tool that solves all of our problems. Uh Instead, we set out to understand how we could integrate sustainability into the design decision making and the value engineering processes to truly integrate sustainability in design. And this is where our differentiator is. Our assessment methodology is not different to other tools that are out there that calculate uh, embodied carbon. Uh, In fact, in many cases, we can use existing tools to develop our assessment. The difference is in how we use this data. We've integrated the data into our design drawings and into the design decision-making processes. So when the engineers undertake value engineering exercises, they not only value engineer the metric of cost, but also from the metric of sustainability. The pavement team is now starting to do this as business as usual and essentially making our sustainability team redundant from the process. This means we can focus our time on the next discipline or the next innovation where we can truly integrate sustainability into the design process. That's great. And Nicole, just in terms of reaction from those clients who've engaged with the tool, uh, what have been some of the advantages that they've found? Is there a case study or a particular project that's really demonstrated the benefits of the tool? Yep. And this is one of our favourite topics, but one of our success stories around this process was on a tender design where we presented a number of different pavement options for the different road types, such as your main line, your tunnel, your shared paths and your different local roads. And because the project was a tender design, there was a reference design that came before that and that acted as the minimum requirements that we needed to meet or we needed to prove how we can improve that previous design. So for the main line, our chosen option showed a 30% reduction in environmental impact compared to that first reference design. And one of the biggest success stories on that project was our shared path, where our option showed a 75% reduction. So I'd say that's a pretty big advantage from our point of view and also from the client's point of view. Definitely. Yeah, so there's that and the clients can also prove to their clients or their end users that they're thinking of sustainability and it's not just tacked on as an afterthought, which it often is. Mm. One of the other advantages is that it helps with benchmarking because we know New South Wales, Australia and a lot of other countries around the world have sustainability targets that they need to meet, whether that's in 2030 or 2050. So if our clients can establish a baseline for how they're doing right now, then they can identify areas which they should be focusing on and how they can better achieve those environmental outcomes. I just want to further widen our lens here because the emissions reduction and decarbonisation considerations are central, but presumably because of those positive outcomes, there's other potential advantages as well. So Ken, I wonder if you could reflect on the possibility of broadening the application of the tool so that it's also drawing in uh, social and financial measures. Uh, Might that offer a way to lift productivity as well, given that we all understand that's another challenge for the infrastructure sector right now? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the momentum's really building um, with us and we're now working with our other disciplines to integrate this concept into their design processes. So we've already started to have success on civil structures and building structures. And by bringing these people together, we're starting to get a diversity of ideas around not just carbon, but also social and financial measures as well. So we're starting to think beyond carbon and consider non-traditional metrics such as infrastructure resilience, for example, or life cycle cost or TOTEX as it's being called now, uh, and expected maintenance closures, which may affect the local community during that uh, asset's life. So road, road authorities and state governments are setting really firm and ambitious targets around these non-traditional environmental, economic and social metrics. And we really need to bring them into our business as usual process rather than have, have them sitting on the sideline as a bit of a sustainability bolt-on. Um, we need to build on this momentum to deliver positive impact through our service delivery. So for me, it's really about getting the best ideas across the entire business and becoming the best sustainable engineering company rather than being an engineering company with a, with a pretty good sustainability team. The more we can push the boundaries together with the engineers and designers, the more we'll be able to create that change that can truly be implemented instead of reporting on things after the, the design has been complete or even uh, not actually implementing some of these features uh, altogether. So so I think this is the beginning of a real shift in momentum and really we're, we're starting to get a lot of internal, I guess, curiosity and uh, energy around thinking outside the traditional metrics of cost, safety and durability. Well, that's great. It's, it's a good ambition to have and it's the best kind of ambition. It's one that's achievable uh, by the sounds of things, by the way that interest is developing. Nicole, I'll just come back to you for a moment. Um, do you get the sense that there's an appetite across the industry to pursue some of the further potential that Ken's just outlined? Do you think there's a way of making this sector's commitment to better community outcomes more visible and, and helping us address some of the other challenges we face around workforce sustainability and attracting the talented people that we need in our workforce to make sure it's fit for purpose and also we have the capacity that we need for the future. I think there's definitely potential. And I think just coming back to the beginning of our chat, most people do want to make a change, but they just don't know how to get involved or what they can really contribute. Mm. So what we're trying to do is create as many opportunities as possible for this discussion and this process to happen. And within that group, there's such a broad range of people. So there could be people within the technical engineering, the sustainability and parallel industry spaces. So environmental sustainability might not be the only factor or even the most important factor in that decision-making process. And there's obviously financial considerations, but for roads, one of the most important factors to consider is safety. And one way we can quantify safety is by forecasting the number of maintenance closures over the life of that road. And the way we do that is with reduced closures, you have a reduction in the number of changes to traffic conditions. So if a road is normally two lanes, but then one lane needs to be closed for maintenance, you might have some drivers who are caught off guard and accidents could then happen. With the reduced maintenance, you'll also improve safety because you don't need a crew to go out and actually do those maintenance works. So this whole process is very flexible and we can look at assessing anything measurable, even factors that we haven't thought of yet. And they'll really get a lot of different type of people interested in the process. Mm, that's great. Nicole and Ken, I think it's a conversation that will have whetted the appetite of many of our listeners. And I hope it's encouraged them to think more broadly about how we can accelerate decarbonisation 
of physical transport infrastructure as well as the vehicle fleet. Just in wrapping up, uh, are there any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Perhaps you first, Ken. Yeah, look, for me, it's really important to recognise that we haven't created a silver bullet here or reinvented a wheel. We've just collaborated with the people who are designing the roads to develop a slightly different way of doing things to make more informed decisions. This is about using information we have and we always have had in a way that creates real change. It wouldn't have been possible without engaging with the people who design the roads. Uh, and as a sustainability professional, that engagement and facilitation to manage that change is so important. To me, again, it's, I guess, a similarity would be uh, at the end of financial year, just reporting on how much money you've spent rather than engaging with your team to manage how that money is spent throughout. So I think to date, we're traditionally, we've been reporting on outcomes. Now we're part of the process so that we can work together to create and see the change as we continually improve into the future. That's a great way of, of looking at it. Thank you, Ken. Uh, Nicole, any, any final observations from you? So just echoing what Ken has said, this whole process has been a real collaboration between the engineers and the sustainability professionals, and it's opened up a lot of dialogue between us. We share much more information now because we know how each other work. And we all pretty much want the same thing, and that's to make sure our clients use all the information available to them and make the best decisions they can for both us and the public. Well, it sounds like what you've uh, really succeeded in doing with, with this tool is, is empowering people to make decisions, um, and that's uh, the only way that you achieve lasting change. So I think that's a good note to end on. Ken and Nicole, thank you very, very much for joining us today. Uh, and we look forward to perhaps having you back down the track to discuss some further successes in relation to the tool. Thank you. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of The Hub. If you didn't get a chance to see Ken's recent article in RA Insider, the link to it is included in the episode description for this episode, and you can also find it in the news section of the RA website, www.roads.org.au. If our conversation today has piqued your curiosity about decarbonisation and circular economy opportunities for our sector, I'd encourage you to register to attend RA's 2023 Transport Summit in Sydney on the 27th of April, because these issues lie at the heart of the summit agenda this year. Tickets are available on our website. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again soon. Mm-hmm.